0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: A teaming arrangement between NASA and Germany's Aerospace Center has started focusing on the Earth's mesosphere and lower thermosphere, where scientists say they've got a lot to learn. They're using an instrument known as the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA. With how the joint venture works and what each country brings to it, we turn to the director of the SOFIA Science Mission Operations, Dr. Margaret Meixner. Dr. Meixner, good to have you on.
2: Thank you, Tom.
1: Now, Dr. Meixner, you're with the University Space Research Association. That's kind of a third element in this whole setup. Tell us how the program is set up and what the uh, association's role in it is.
2: Sure. NASA Ames manages the whole SOFIA project, but they partner with, um, in tandem with, the University Space Research Association. And we manage, basically, that we bridge the science to the community and to the public. So we basically deliver the science.
1: Got it. So this is one of many projects that the association is involved with?
2: Yes. There are a number of other institutions around the country, and we partner with NASA on projects uh, such as Sophia.
1: Okay, so tell us more about Sophia. Sophia is the thing that is gathering data. Is it on the ground? Is it orbiting the earth? What is it?
2: It's actually in between. Uh, so Sophia is an airborne observatory which conducts uh, research uh, that's impossible to do from the largest or even highest uh, ground-based telescopes. So Sophia flies 38,000 to 45,000 feet above the earth. To observe infrared light. So basically it gets up high enough to get above the water vapor, which coats a veil to the infrared light and prevents it from getting to the ground. But if you fly up above that, you can see all of it, all that light, even study water itself. So SOFIA is a 80-20 partnership, as you mentioned, between NASA and the German Airspace Center. It consists of an extensively modified Boeing 747 SP aircraft carrying a reflective telescope that's 2.7 meters in diameter. Basically, there's a door that opens up in the back. It does observations. And when it's done, it closes the door and they land.
1: Got it. Yeah. So it's almost uh, similar to an AWACS type of aircraft in that it flies like a jet plane flies, but it's got something on top that's very specialized. And so the mesosphere and the lower thermosphere, what is the importance of those in terms of what you're learning up there in infrared light?
2: Right. So you must be talking about where we took an observation, basically, of the Earth's atmosphere. It's a very interesting thing that someone did because we, of course, study astronomical objects. So we're studying things above the Earth's atmosphere. But SOFIA really has an impact on all walks of NASA science. And so what people did was they took our data because we have to observe through the Earth's atmosphere. So we observe those mesosphere and those layers because we don't go into space. Um, And so they took the light from the observations and were able to measure and monitor like the oxygen line in that atmosphere to determine sort of temperature stratification. So they're learning a lot about the Earth as well as as we are learning about astronomy. And it's done basically as a byproduct. It's in our archive, and people mined the archive and discovered this, so it's pretty cool.
1: Got it. So Sophia can also look at black holes and things way out there because it's got a oh. clear view from 35 40,000 feet, but while you were at it, there's some really interesting things going on in the thin part of the atmosphere. Fair enough way to put it?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we had a result released last year where we're looking at a cold quasar where you have a black hole that you can detect with Sophia, but then it has enough gas around it that it's actually actively forming stars. And this was a conundrum because it's thought that when black holes turn on, basically the galaxy shuts down it becomes what they call red and dead, like no more stars form. And this was a case where you either are catching it in the act or it's a challenge to theories because... Why do you have them both so intensively active at the same time?
1: Got it. We're speaking with Dr. Margaret Meixner. She's director of the SOFIA Science Mission Operations at the University Space Research Association. And is this with human eye observation that these learnings are coming? Or is this telescope or this dish on top of the plane simply gathering lots of data and then that's downloaded and then people infer what's going on through data?
2: Yeah, it's very much data. Driven as you were. We use computers and computer processing to process the data. And the light is not light that the human eye is sensitive to. So if you think of the colors, the rainbow, you have red and you go longer of red, like if you could see beyond there, then you get to the infrared. And Sophia covers all of the infrared. That's what's so amazing about it. It covers a huge wavelength range that has a lot of untapped science potential in, in astronomy and sofia offers astronomers that so they can discover things in that wavelength range they're brand new that no one's ever seen before
1: so we might discover something about how the upper atmosphere interacts with say rays coming from space or how it interacts with phenomena below it on earth and in the heavier atmosphere
2: Mainly, we will be able to determine what's happening in the Earth's atmosphere that's sort of above where Sophia is. That's what it's observing.
1: And does Sophia fly every day? Does it fly once a month, once a year? Does it crisscross the globe in different directions? How does it get a good sample? Because one plane flying in a line is only going to get a tiny piece of the atmosphere.
2: You are very smart, Tom. Yes, absolutely. So we actually have very intricate flight planning to get the observations that astronomers propose. We can fly anywhere in the world, but we, in fact, we recently returned from a deployment in Germany, where we observed in Germany. And we typically fly a lot out of Palmdale, California. That's where NASA Armstrong Air Force Base is. But we also deploy in the Southern Hemisphere because astronomers want to see the whole sky. Uh, If you stay in north, you just see the northern sky. But people want to see things like the Magellanic Clouds. So we go down to New Zealand. We deploy from New Zealand. They're looking for other sites to deploy from, such as French Polynesia. And uh, it's been to give access to astronomers to see um, all parts of the sky.
1: What if you want to overfly, say, China or Russia? And this is purely scientific. There's no other instruments on there that are spying on them. Is that something they allow or that you're able to do?
2: That would be a policy discussion if it was found necessary to do that. Basically, the SOFIA program works with the U.S. government through diplomatic channels to inquire, such as when we were in Germany. They had to get clearance from something like 40 plus countries because we were flying over lots of countries. And if you don't get the clearance, you don't go there.
1: Got it. Sure. So maybe there's the possibility that the data could be shared with other countries and they could participate. Possibility? (sighs) Possibility?
2: Well, I can tell you, actually, SOFIA has what they call an open skies policy. So that basically we want the best science done with SOFIA. And so we do have people from all over the world apply to use the SOFIA instrument. We have what's called a peer review process. We have a call once a year. Astronomers put in proposals saying, hey, I want to look at the magnetic field shaping the Orion Nebula, And they put that in and their peers look at it and it's like, yeah, that's really cool science. You go. And that's how they choose uh, the science program. It's actually highly regulated. The programs are, they're, they're amazing science programs. We actually can't even do all these amazing science programs. And so people reapply year after year, but it's a very competitive peer review process.
1: And what about NOAA? Because they also have their GOES satellites and also observation platforms that fly and that go on the ocean and so forth. They must be interested in this data also.
2: Yes. So the Sophia Archive is available and publicly available. So if like an Earth scientist like they did with this recent result on the Earth, they can access the data and work on it to learn what they need to learn. Um, So people or scientists who use things like NOAA, yes, they can come use uh, the SOFIA observations and uh, could even propose to use it. We had this recent amazing result on the moon where uh, someone who wanted to study to see if there was water on the moon came and we discovered, uh, because we get above the water vapor of the earth, that there's water molecules on the sunlit surface of the moon, which was very surprising to people because they thought, how can water survive with the sun beating on it?
1: Wow, sounds like a discovery a month here in this program. Dr. Margaret Meixner is director of the SOFIA, Science Mission Operations. She's with the university's Space Research Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WAPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast?
3: Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way, uh, great men Theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I, think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other, and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about. Um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee, Uh, He joined the federal government in the 1960s. John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, Still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, I've led. This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service.
2: This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away,
0: Go to grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's grammarly.com slash podcasts.